horses are at the gate. And they're off. Welcome to Winning Ponies. With the weekend coming up, this is the spot to be for news, handicapping, and spotlights featuring the winners behind horse racing today. Now, here's your host, John Inglehart, racing's regular guy. Well, welcome back to Winning Ponies. Uh, looking forward to tonight's show as always. Thanks for joining us. If it wasn't for you, I'd be sitting all alone in this room having a beer talking to myself. But instead, producer Josh is here, and I've got two outstanding guests that, uh, as always, I can't wait to get to. The first guy is a guy I've been trying to keep tabs on for years and finally got a hold of him uh, because I, I uh, read his uh derby list in the thoroughbred daily news and uh his name is td thornton uh he's been published in the racing times the boston globe the new york times uh and now he uh, does a weekly derby top 12 for the tdn as it is fondly known uh great author perhaps uh one of the uh, uh the, the greatest racing books ever not by a long shot. It's hard to believe that book is over 10 years old, but it's still applicable today. Uh, it talks about uh, uh, his beloved Suffolk Downs. Uh, that is uh, where he started going to the races, where I believe his father was a trainer at the time, uh, growing up at the old New England racing circuit. So TD got it in his blood early on, and he is just a support superb writer again one of my all-time favorite books not by a long shot but he's got a new book out too <laughs> uh, my adventures with your money george graham rice and the golden age of the con artist <laughs> so uh i guess this guy went on to become america's most uh, prolific swindlers so, th so that's td thornton and uh he's a I'm still based up in the uh, Boston area. And then a guy that's just an award-winning writer. Uh, you can hear him on uh, Sirius Radio. And, of course, once again, TDN, the Thoroughbred Daily News. Uh, he's a regular there. And he actually does a column on the uh, top Kentucky Oaks horses. So we'll be asking about him. We lost uh, two major Oaks contenders this week. And uh, I'll be getting to that right away. So those are our guests. Uh, there are no Derby or Oaks Points races this weekend. So we'll be sticking with uh, the news and with those two guys, uh, TD and Bill. Well, this one just out, late breaking news, Bast has been retired due to injury. Uh, that past 24 hours have been good, bad news for Bob Baffert, I can tell you that. So he lost multiple grade one winner BAPs to a soft tissue injury. On the good side of things, I wish there was more good stuff to talk about this week, uh, champion game winner is coming back. He worked for the first time after a five-month layoff. But uh, back to Bass that a lot of people were putting down as their Kentucky Oaks favorite. She was a daughter. Uncle Mo won three grade ones last year, third in the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. And, uh, again, soft tissue damage was discovered in the front 
ankle, according to Baffert. He said, a couple of days ago, we noticed a little filling. Uh, she thought we had hit on it or something with her other leg, but then ultrasound showed some soft tissue uh, damage, and she was going to need four months off, She was so she was going to miss the oaks, and with these things, they're not guaranteed that she's going to come back 100%, and my God, three grade ones, yeah, I think she's going to be pretty popular uh, as a, uh, a broodmare, so... Uh, uh, anyhow, Bast is out of it. Uh, she sold for $500,000 out of Taylor Maid's uh, agency at the Saratoga sale. Uh, just uh, you know, a fantastic filly, and she's going to be very, very uh, much missed. Now, let's talk a little bit more about some good news. Uh, Gary Mary West, game winner. He's a three-time grade one winner, and of course, Got to go back a little bit. 2018 champion, two-year-old Colt, came back to the work tab, and he's looking like his old self here. This was just this morning. Uh, went in 36-3, and three, breezing three furlongs. Baffert says he looks great. He's always trying to catch up, and now that he's had time off, I see a big campaign with him this summer. So now he's a four-year-old son of Candy Ride, and he's not really being pointed at any specific race, uh, but he's looking for something around May. So who knows? Maybe he'll uh, get on the van with any one of the many uh, potential derby horses uh, Baffert might have, so you might get to see him down there. This, for some reason, wasn't a big surprise, but... Country House has been retired. That's right. The official winner of last year's Kentucky Derby has been retired following a bout with laminitis, according uh, to a statement put out by the ownership group of Country House, uh, now four years old. Uh, he retires with two wins and seven starts, earnings of $2.1 million. Stud plans not made yet, but they're forthcoming. So uh, he it started back in June where he sent to Rudin Riddle after just a routine. Remember the Derby first Saturday in May. So June twenty seventh, they started seeing it. You notice. His name was on the down low for a long time there that he was just kind of recuperating on a farm. Uh, but they did have a routine lameness examination. And then it was followed up by a turnout. And the best Dr. Larry Bramlage uh, examiner. And so I don't know all the fancy words, but uh, proximal suspensory ligament demdesis on both front fetlocks. Uh, he experienced complication and was readmitted to Rudin Riddle. This is now on July 1st, where uh, his uh, lower right leg um, got a leg infection. Uh, then things got pretty tough. They got the infection under control. But as you know, with laminitis, they, you're, you're favoring the bad foot. And a lot of times the good foot uh, goes bad. This is, I believe, what happened with Secretariat. So uh, then he did go off for stall rest in July. Uh, they stabilized the foot. But Either way, uh, there's no chance that he would definitely make a full recovery because of the laminitis and then um, the things that were taken to save his life. They just feel it wouldn't be right. Um, Bill Mott wins his first derby. And uh, he was kind of sad when you read some of his comments because it came at a time when he was just coming into himself and that uh, he felt that his future had been bright. Uh, Mott said he was an up-and-coming horse. He's big, strong, rugged horse. It just seemed to be learning what the game was all about by the time he got to the Derby. And they were really looking forward to the way he's built, uh, that uh, he'd make a great 
older horse and he really thought that he'd be getting a lot of classic distances like the mile and a quarter so um country house uh, again no announcement on stud and uh i mean if it was 100 percent, i guess he could start this season but we'll find out now more on the bad news side stakes winning philly taraz had a catastrophic injury she broke down just three days ago at Oak Lawn Park. She had just won the Martha Washington Stakes, uh, but uh, it was a catastrophic injury just during a morning workout. Uh, a homebred from Judmark Farm. She secured her, secured her third win uh, when she easily took the Martha Washington on the front end, just drawing off in, in the uh, stretch. Uh, Brad Cox, who had a good weekend uh, i'm sure this put a damper on it as it started uh she was one of those daughters of into mischief my god he was the leading stallion last year and everywhere you look when you're looking at graded stakes races you're seeing into mischief sons and daughters uh if not winning hitting the board so it was her left front pastern just working out uh they got her back to the barn and x-rays uh you know, just show that it it was too tragic to try to keep her in training or, sad to say, not even to keep her around as a broodmare. So, uh, Taraz, obviously, another one that will not be in the Kentucky Oaks. Okay, interesting news here uh, because it's a throwdown time in Saudi Arabia. Uh, the American horses headed up by maximum security have landed in Saudi Arabia. Twelve horses from America, uh, including maximum security, McKinsey, Midnight Bizu, Mucho Gusto, and Tacitus, uh, just arrived there yesterday. And now the race is going to be next weekend. We'll see what guests we can get on to talk about the Saudi Cup and its supporting races. Uh, so it looks like uh, they all traveled well and unloaded the Saudi Saudi Cup again, $20 million, and we'll try to keep you as updated as we can on next week's show. Uh, but right now, it looks like Mass Maximum Security, uh, who last out won the Cigar Mile, uh, is made the slight favorite, you know, British bookmakers. Uh, he's around two to one, five to two. Uh, McKinsey is right there with them as the second choice, uh, followed by Godolphin's Ben Bottle. Four to one and six to one. He's a group one winner on the turf, and he took the Al Maktoum challenge. So we're going to try to keep you updated as much as we can next week because the Saudi Cup will only be two days later. Um, uh, Baffert got another hopeful in Charlatan, a son of Spitestown, uh, who uh, was uh, just started young and won his uh, impressively just. Two days before, another Baffert trainee won his first race, a horse by the name of Justify, who went on to win the Triple Crown. Well, she had not been pregnant lately, and old age finally got to preach. She was just a fantastic Claiborne Farm broodmare. I think you'll know one of her sons, a guy by the name of Pulpit. So... Um, she just died due to infirmities of old age and one of the queens of Claiborne Farm. Uh, it, it was announced that she had passed. Uh, she was a daughter of Claiborne Farm stallion, Mr. Prospector. Uh, 
Preach was born in 1989 out of the Honest Pleasure Mayor Narrate. Yes, folks, I have photos of Narrate winning a race at River Downs. <laughs> so we go back a ways. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, she was a grade one winner in all right when in the Frazette Stakes at Belmont Park. But let's face it, uh, her very first mating uh, produced a pulpit and uh an injury after the 97 Kentucky Derby forced him to retire him to stud, but pretty effective. In 15 years, he's had 74 stakes winners. His most famous son, three-time leading sire, Tappet. All right, I'm not going to be able to get to a whole lot of race results. So my producer, Josh, is telling me a very important one that a lot of people might have missed because it was on Monday, if you had President's Day off. Hope you did get to see it. And that was the Southwest with Derby points up for grabs. And the winner, well, an Asmussen trainee that just didn't uh, gear it up in the Smarty Jones and fell victim to a slow pace in the Smarty Jones, uh, drifted a little bit late, Rated in third on the rail by Ricardo Santana Jr. Asmussen had three horses in here. Anytime he's got multiple ent entries, I look to see who Santana is riding. So Silver Prospector, a son of Declaration of War, uh, takes down the grade three southwest. In the second spot at 8-1 to one along the rail, Wells Bayou making only his Fourth career lifetime start, Brad Cox trainee. And in the third spot was Answer In, who was the favorite, uh, but ran kind of erratically in the face in the stretch and had to finish for the third spot. Well, I wish we had a little more time because I've got a lot more news to tell you about, but duty calls and we got to pay the rent with some of our commercials. But we come back, TD Thornton's going to make his Winning Ponies debut. You're listening to Winning Ponies. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. And they're off! What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with winningponies.com, the home of the easy win form, the most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry, let winningponies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full fields with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Inglehart, racing's regular guy. The phone lines are open and are toll free. 1-866-472-5788 or send us an email at show at winningponies.com John and our guests are looking forward to hearing from you. Have any tips or comments you'd like to share? Any questions we would be happy to answer? Contact us. Now, back to the show. 
Winning Ponies with John Inglehart. All right, our next guest, a guy I've been wanting to talk to for many, many years, T.D. Thornton. I'll give you a little bit more of his background, but I'm telling you, as I told you at the top of the show, his book that was written over a decade ago, not by a long shot, a season at a hard luck horse track, is just fantastic. This guy is such a marvelous uh, writer. His, his vision, the things he sees, small details, you feel you're, like you're right there on the backstretch with him. And uh, it's because he grew up on the backstretch somewhat. His father trained horses at Rockingham Park. Uh, their hometown track in Salem, New Hampshire. Uh, he's still up in that area near Boston. And uh, so uh, with no further information, we'll mention his new book, which we already mentioned, My Adventures with Your Money. <laughs> I love the title. George Graham Rice in the Golden Age of the Con Artist. TD, welcome. John, thank you for having me. Good evening. Uh, well, it was great, great talking to you over the last couple of days, uh, uh, listening to uh, some of your experiences and uh, knowing that, uh, yeah, I heard of you, John Engelhardt. I like that. I'm always impressed with that. But tell me about your, your <laughs> early days, your early days uh, w- w- with, with your father. I mean, were you a backstretch rat or uh, how did you kind of just evolve into the love of the game? Well, as you mentioned, we grew up in Salem, New Hampshire, which was the home of Rockingham Park. And when I was a kid, uh, both my parents were school teachers, and my dad, as his side hobby, as, as one of them that he had, uh, was training racehorses. And he, he was a very much a small-scale owner and trainer starting in the late 1960s. In fact, he won his very first race about six weeks after I was born in 1968. And... He he always had a couple of horses, competed on the old New England circuit, which back then consisted not just of Rockingham Park and Suffolk Downs in Boston, but there there was Green Mountain Park in Vermont. Scarborough Downs in Maine was actually where he won his first race. He competed on the old Rhode Island circuit uh, with Narragansett Park and Lincoln Downs. And I liked nothing better when I was a kid other than uh, tagging along with my dad to, to um, to the track and to the backstretch. He didn't have his horses stabled at Rockingham Park, but this was back in the days when there were a number of farms in Salem. They've all been replaced by retail outlets now. (laughs) And you could walk the horses from the farm that that we were at down Policy Street and and into the back gate of Rockingham Park, and that's where he'd walk out the horses. And any time that I could tag along for the morning training, or even better yet, the action in the afternoons was, was really what grabbed me. And I can remember being a young kid, I'm, I'm going to say about five years old, and I can remember visions of my dad saddling horses in the paddock before a race at Rockingham. And that was the one place that I was not allowed to go with him because of, of the danger of being a, a five-year-old kid and maybe getting underfoot of the horses as they were getting ready for action. I had to be on the other side of the fence, so to speak, figuratively and literally. And it, you know, the, my dad would uh, he'd have his serious face on, so I knew I knew this was a... This wasn't just some uh, hobby at that point. It, it was something that he really thought highly of and, and was very serious about. He'd give the jockey a leg up. The bugler would play the call to post. The horses would go out onto the track for the warm-ups. And then a few minutes later, of course, they'd be thundering home and the crowd would erupt. And that just got to me. When I was a little kid, that, that was my life. That resonated with me. And I always kind of kept it in the back of my mind. I didn't know how I was going to do it or if I could do it. 
But I always wanted to be on the other side of that fence where my dad was. And eventually, I, I found a way to make it happen by my uh, by my enjoyment of writing and going to the racetrack. I, I figured if I could ever con somebody into giving me a job where I could earn a living, where I, I got to <laughs> choose those two things that I love, which is writing and horse racing into one thing, uh, I was going to make it happen. And it didn't happen right away, but, but eventually it did. And I, I've been... Um, Nothing but glad ever, ever since that one moment. But I always do remember that that one crystallized moment, wanting to get on the other side of the fence. And eventually I got there. And I got to be there, making it even more special with my dad. Because he had, um, eventually, it, it, when Rockingham Park succumbed to a fire in 1980, he, he shut down his racing operation. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't in it in a big enough scale to continue on with the rest of the circuit and, and to leave his family at home in Salem. But... When I was able to, I got my journalism degree, and I got into writing for newspapers, and I was writing with the, the Racing Times newspaper in the early 1990s. Oh, yeah. My dad was getting getting close to retirement from school teaching, and he wanted to get back in the game. So the way that he lured me into it when I was a kid, um, I kind of lured him back into it when he, when he had the time and the means to get back into it. So it, it really came full cir- circle for me, and that, that's been very gratifying. And uh, along the way, uh, your uh, you know love of the game and your enthusiasm brought you into the announcers booth at Suffolk Downs. Yeah, that, that's correct. So, so to give you a, a little the, the, the Reader's Digest condensed version of my trajectory, I wrote for the Racing Times, uh, the upstart newspaper. For people who weren't familiar, that was the big challenger to daily racing form. Yes. back in nineteen ninety one, it was it was headed by Steve Christ, uh, who uh-huh. left his job at the New York Times to form the Racing Times, and we it was really fun. We were the upstart newspaper. Uh, I, I I was at the time I was writing for a, a small. Uh, daily uh, general general assignment reporting job for a newspaper in Massachusetts. And when I heard that Steve Christ was going to start the Racing Times, I wrote him a letter. And basically, I didn't ask. I begged him to be on the staff. And I said, I will relocate to any track in the country if you'll give me a, a, a chance to break into the business as a turf writer. And I surprised, somewhat surprisingly got a reply and said, we're looking for a guy to be a columnist and a handicapper in New England. And we're going to give you a little bit of a tryout. So I had to actually have a handicapping tryout. I don't think they were looking to see whether I picked winners or not. It's just whether I could fluidly describe how a race might be handicapped in, a, in print form. And uh, I showed them some of my writing samples. I had a little bit of freelancing experience doing some, some racetrack writing. And I got hired, and that was my big break. And... I think some of, the, some of your listeners might know the story, but the, the Racing Times was meteoric. It, 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 it was the, the upstart challenger to the racing form, but we didn't last long because the guy who had bankrolled the paper, Robert Maxwell, was a wealthy uh, British media tycoon, and it was soon discovered that he was raiding his pension funds of his employees. Oh, great. And he was going to be on, on the hook for, for uh, some major trouble, and he either fell... Or if you believe the stories, he jumped off the side of his yacht and he and he drowned. And wow. after Mr. Maxwell died, the racing times folded. And as the way these things often happen in the media industry, the assets got bought up by who else but the competitor, Daily Racing Form, and they they just bought the assets so that so the racing times would be killed off. I have so, a great collectible, which is the actual the first edition of. The Racing Times. Uh, I, wow. Yeah. Well, 
<clears throat> just to inject myself in the conversation, my photo was on the front cover. So it was, uh, I think it was Chris McCarron winning on, uh, winning the Derby on Gopher Gin. Uh, it was either that or the passing of Rodney Dickens. I know at some point both of those made the front page, but I have the actual first edition. God knows where it is. Hope my wife didn't find it and you know, throw it out. But uh, <laughs> I hide these things fairly well. So I do remember the racing times and I know, you know, uh, you, I, I've only got a, a couple of minutes left. So we, there's, two things we need to get out there because I know the first one is timeless and that's not by a long shot. The season of a hard luck horse track, highly recommended. If anybody buys it and doesn't like it, I will give them their money back, but you got to give me the book because mine keep getting stolen by friends of mine. And, but the, the, the new one, uh, my adventures with your money, George Graham Rice and the golden age of the con artist. Uh, I'm already hearing uh, reviews on it that are extremely favorable. What, uh, what Lord, you to this character? Well, George Graham Rice was perhaps the greatest con artist that America has never heard of, and I, and I kind of came across him peripherally when doing some, some research for a, an article I was writing for the Boston Globe about, um, about, about con artists. And he, race, people who are interested in the racetrack and immersed in the horse racing life will find it a good segue here, because the first section of the book, and this is kind of what drew me in as well, was George Graham Rice was a tipster circa 1900, and he eventually um, parlayed his, his way uh, up the, 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 uh, the food chain, so to speak, of con artistry by conning people into betting his racetrack tips, and he was not, uh, as you might imagine, back in 1900, there were, there were very few uh, quality controls or very few barriers to whether you wanted to be a racetrack published out or not, and he... he took some liberties and took advantage of, of, of people's psychology in betting the races. And that's how he built up his fortune. He took the last $7.10 he had in his pocket and uh, started a tipping ser service and eventually parlayed that into millions of dollars, which, of course, as a lot of con artists do, he then lost. Well, I, I know at Saratoga, where I cut my teeth as a little kid, uh, there was uh, somebody's little green sheet and it had the picture of him and stuff. And you go in the train, people would buy it back then. People loved to be touted. And so what they do is they'd watch, oh, three quarters of the card and they'd go back in their car with a printing thing and then print out <laughs> a new green sheet with the winning horses in there. So as you walked out of the track, they had them tacked up all over the exits going towards the parking lot said, well, yeah, we had the daily double and we had this $52 winner. And you're looking, it's like, wow, there's the sheet. They're not, I'm going to buy one tomorrow. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, they were out there uh, years and years ago. I think things are a little more legit. Legit. Now, uh, but anyhow, that's my adventures with your money, and um, I'm I'm guessing that uh, both books still uh, accessible through uh, Amazon. Um, people can follow you on your Twitter handle at, at Thornton TD, uh, or then just go to your website uh, tdthornton.net to get more information about you know how how they can get these uh, Amazon, Goodreads, the library thing, Barnes and Noble. Uh, iTunes, for that matter, if they just want to listen to it. Uh, I just want to make sure we got that in, TD, for a little shameless self-promotion. Well, thank you very much. Especially my, my con artist friend, George Graham Rice, would be very proud of you for doing that, and I, and I thank you as well. <laughs> well, TD, I, you, you've got something on your shoulders right now as, as far as uh, coming up with, I believe it's a weekly top 12 list going to the Derby. 
Yeah, I write for Thoroughbred Daily News, and one of the uh, great things I get to do is the, the weekly Derby Rundown. So it's uh, it's the PDN Derby Top Twelve, and we go over the, uh, the yeah the hierarchy of the horses as they stand. I, I tell people right now at this early stage of the season in February, I have thousand words. Bob Baffert's Colt ranked number one, but any Colt in February I consider a placeholder at number one. They don't own the top spot. And, in fact, as the season progresses and we get actually closer to, to the Derby itself, uh, I make a point of disclosing within the rankings which horse is, the, A, the most likely winner. That's usually number one in the rankings. But also the horses who are going to be better bets, parimutually speaking. So we try to identify those horses because the horse who is the most likely winner, I think we all know, is, is not always the best and wisest thing to do with your money. No. Well, T.D. Thornton, it has been a pleasure. It won't be the last because now that I know that you're working on your uh, your derby list, as we get a little bit closer to that first Saturday in May, I'm going to be ringing you up again to talk about the real legitimate uh, contenders as they try a mile and a quarter for the first time. Is that all right? Thank you very much, John. I'll be looking forward to it. All right, the Thoroughbred Daily News is where you get a hold of TD, and it's also where you get to find our next guest, Bill Finley. Uh, you should be familiar with his name by now. He's been doing this for a while. So, uh, again, thanks to TD Thornton. I'm John Engelhart. You're listening to Winning Ponies. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com And they're off! What? Can't make it to the track? You can still get all the action with WinningPonies.com, the home of the easy win form, the most accurate predictions on thoroughbreds, quarters, and Arabian horses at most American and Canadian tracks. Whether it be the Triple Crown, Breeders' Cup, Travers, Haskell, or your daily races, don't worry, let WinningPonies.com make some money for you. Pick, bet, and cheer on live racing from Woodbine and Mohawk Park. Thoroughbred and harness action. The wagers are just the beginning. Watch award-winning broadcasts covering both breeds. Incredible battles contested over the most unique grass course in North America. Experience the full fields with over 130 thoroughbred and 160 live harness days. Get access to free handicapping material and join the ranks of Woodbine and Mohawk Park players from all over the globe. For more information, visit woodbine.com. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're tuned in to Winning Ponies with your host, John Inglehart, racing's regular guy. The phone lines are open and are toll-free, 1-866-472-5788, or send us an email at show at winningponies.com. John and our guests are looking forward to hearing from you. Have any tips or comments you'd like to share? Any questions we would be happy to answer? Contact us. Now, back to the show. Winning Ponies with John Inglehart. All right, and with me, a man I respect 
very, very much for his his overall knowledge of all aspects of thoroughbred racing. Uh, he doesn't pull any punches with his writing. If uh, uh, Bill feels in a certain direction, you'll certainly uh, get that impression by the time you finish uh, reading his writing or uh, listening to him on, on the radio. Uh, he is a Eclipse Award winner. He won it back in 210 for Outstanding Magazine Writing for the Thoroughbred Daily News. We've been using that word a lot tonight, TDN. Bill, how are you? You're a busy man. I'm doing great. I'm doing great, John. Uh, really happy to be with you tonight. Well, uh, you, you know, so so many of uh, your your columns uh, deal with uh, a, a myriad of subjects. Of course, in racing, we don't we don't run out of them. So um, I just, uh, if, if we can, Bill, over the next 20 minutes, I, I just kind of wanted to uh, pick your brain, talk about some recent stories you wrote. One, uh, you, you, it was fun watching this horse, and this is a story you just wrote oh, about 10 days ago, and it was about the, the Louisiana mystery horse, Spices Up the Derby Trail, and uh, no parole. Pretty interesting. We haven't seen too many legitimate uh, contenders be Louisiana breds, but I've watched this horse run. Looks like the real deal, and he's in some good hands and has a decent pedigree. Yeah, I mean, he sure does look like the real deal, but then again, how do you know? And the reason why I'm saying this is this horse has run only three times in its life, and in all three starts have been against Louisiana breds. Now, Louisiana breds are okay, uh, but then again, it's not like running an open company at, at uh, Stand and Eat or Gulfstream or something like that. So you have no idea who he's been beating and how good he is. I think he's really good, and like you said, he's in good hands with Tom Amos. His pedigree is very good. He's not by a Louisiana sire. He's by violence, who's a regular uh, Kentucky sire at Hillendale. So he's got the breeding and everything. But I, I think it's kind of fun because... You know, when you look at these Bob Baffert horses and, you know, horses coming out of Florida with Todd Pletcher, well, you know, you pretty much know what you have. Some might go on and be really good. Some might not. But my, by and large, you have a way of judging them. And to me, to have a horse that, like, you don't know if this horse could win the Derby or he's going to be last beating 30 lengths. Uh, and it could be, could be either or. I just think that's fun and sort of spices up the road to the Derby. And, uh, you know, I, I like this horse. I like Tom Amos. Uh, so I'm kind of rooting for him. Yeah, and the other side of his connection, Maggie Moss, I guess after he won this last race, uh, her phone was ringing off the hook, and she turned down a lot of offers that were somewhat lucrative because they wanted to take over a little bit of the management horse or maybe get away from Tom Amos. And, and you know, Maggie, she's uh, pretty outspoken herself about things in this sport, and she waited around till the right guy came along and was going to keep it in Amos's hand and wasn't going to dictate. He just wanted a piece of a potential derby horse. So Maggie Moss will make things interesting and uh, certainly be good uh, interview fodder for you writers. Yeah, I mean, talk about somebody who doesn't pull any punches. She's very opinionated. She's a very interesting story. A, a lawyer out of Iowa who has given up her law practice to just manage her own racing stable. She's been very successful, but by and large, it's been more acclaimers and that sort of thing. So this is sort of new territory for her as well. And, uh, yeah, I saw that somebody bought in. I mean, you would never want to take this horse away from Tom Amos. You know, granted, he hasn't won a derby, but he's as sharp as they come. He's a really good trainer. And, uh, John, we're going to see this horse. Uh, Thomas told me that he's looking at the Rebel Stakes at Oakland. 
not set in stone. But, you know, he knows no more fooling around Louisiana Bridge. Now, he has to get some derby points to be able to get into the derby. And also, he, too, needs to find out what kind of horse he has. You know, Tom's very high on this horse, but he understands the situation that, you know, it's very hard to judge a horse at all three races against Louisiana Bridge. I mean, imagine if you had a horse, um, what do you have, Mahoney Valley running this year? Imagine if you had a horse that just won an Ohio bred race in Mahoney Valley by 40 lengths. <laughs> kind of the same thing. What do you have here? No idea. Hey, we could have one in the uh, Oaks in uh, uh, Nikki and Papa, who making uh, her debut, uh, finished third in, in a graded stakes that uh, uh, leads horses to the Oaks uh, down at Gulfstream Park. So it's not impossible. And don't forget, uh, we've had a couple other nice ones, like uh, Harlan's Holiday was a little old Ohio bred. Now, we just talked to TD, who I know you know, and you know you work with him in the same publication. Um, now, you're job, correct me if I'm wrong, is you're tracking the Phillies uh, that might be going to the Oaks, and sad to say you lost two of the headliners in a recent story you uh, penned in Taraj and Bast. I mean, boy, what a what a punch to the gut that was the last couple of days. Yeah, and Taraz, that was really unfortunate, I mean, as all horse deaths are. Uh, the horse broke down at Oakland last week, or excuse me, earlier this week, uh, preparing for maybe stakes down there. And this is another horse that uh, looked like she just could be an absolute monster. And again, really not all that proven as she had uh, yet to win a graded stakes race. I kind of gone through her conditions a little bit for uh, Brad Cox. But, you know, she looked like she could really be something special. And as a matter of fact, I mean, owned by Judmont Farms, they were so excited about this horse, they were literally talking about running her in the Kentucky Derby instead of the uh, Kentucky Oaks. And they hadn't made up their mind yet. Now, of course, a moot point, but that was really a sad thing to see. Um, nonetheless, I, you know, having lost that horse who, uh, you know, I don't know, I never got a chance to rank her. I may or may not have put her, uh, I'm sure I would have had her in the top three. I'm not really sure exactly where. I don't think I would have put her number one. But uh, nonetheless, I still think this three-year-old group of Phillies is very, very good this year. Uh, absolutely. A- absolutely. So we've, we've still got some like British Idiom and, and Finite that, that, that are going to, uh, you know, k- keep things interesting. Um, now, the other one of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, because anybody that has a state-bred program that has slots worries about this. And I don't know if... It, it, if if the fire's out, you're pretty close to the story geographically. Is what is going on in Pennsylvania? If the governor gets his way, you can just put a line through thoroughbred racing in that state. Well, unfortunately, you're right about that. And the backstory is, and you have it in Ohio now too. The uh, horse racing in Pennsylvania is by and large very very dependent on revenues from slot machines. Uh, matter of fact, the statistic is that 88% of the purses paid out in Pennsylvania uh, come from slot machine revenues. And they have something called the um, Horse Racing Development Fund, which is worth about roughly $250 million. And the governor, Tom Wolf, came out with a bombshell a couple weeks ago that he wanted to take $204 million out of that fund and divert it to scholarships for uh, students in Pennsylvania who uh, otherwise couldn't afford college, go to Pennsylvania state schools, etc. Now, when the governor comes out with his budget, now it's in his budget, uh, that's step one. There's many steps along the way. I'm sure it's the same in Ohio, where the legislature has to sign off on and everybody has to agree. So the, the final budget won't be due till June 30th 
which is quite a long time from now. So horse racing has its chance now to fight. Uh, I don't know exactly what's going on or where this progressed. Probably really not much has happened. I'm sure this is all 11th hour stuff. But you're right, John. I mean, literally, I don't think horse racing could survive in Pennsylvania without this this money. And uh, the breeding industry would be devastated. The numbers they're throwing out are, you know, are, are huge. You know, about $19 billion in, in economic uh, impact that the horse racing has on the state every year. Uh, 20,000 jobs. And so they're going to start going out to the legislatures and using these numbers. And say, hey, look, now this is crazy. You can't take a whole industry and just kill it uh, overnight like that. So what is going to be the end result? I mean, obviously, horse racing industry is hoping that he's not able to take a penny and that would be the best case. Uh, purses are very good at the Pennsylvania tracks, especially parks. My guess is, and this is just a guess, is that they're going to meet somewhere in the middle. And uh, if you know, if you were to take a hundred million dollars out of the fund, that would still be a huge, huge hit to it. But I think horse racing could still survive in Pennsylvania. Again, I'm not that uh, up on the politics of Pennsylvania, even though, like you said, it is a neighboring state. But I, I just can't see this, and I, I hate to be so negative about this for, so far as how it affects horse racing, but I can't see this governor coming out asking for $200 million for what would be one of the achievements, signature achievements of his um, governor's uh, tenure to create this, on what on the surface looks like, you know, if it weren't for taking the money from horse racing, what a great idea to be able to have kids in the state be able to afford a higher education and and come out with a way that they can pay for it. I can't see them walking away from that without anything. So maybe they meet in the middle, huge blow still to horse racing. You know, again, that's just my guessing. But, uh, you know, stay tuned. This is a big story. And just like you said, it's not just a big story for Pennsylvania. It's a big story for every single state in this country that has slot money going to horse racing. Because, you know, be it Ohio, be it New York, uh, be it, um, you know, any one of the other dozen, uh, many dozens of states that has it, you can bet that the governor of state blank is looking at this and saying, hmm, Look what they did in in, uh, Pennsylvania. Why can't we do that here, too? We sure could use this money for, again, fill in the blanks. Well, we're we're talking with uh, with Bill Finley right now. You know, Bill, part of what I do now in in the promotion of racing is, oh, that is great, the children. Well, how many children's parents are going to become unemployed, be put out of a job, and we're just concentrating as they do? On the racetrack, I have been reading uh, the farms, and they're already getting calls going, hey, I'm not sending my uh, mare to Pennsylvania because I have no idea what her chances are of, you know, producing horses are going to actually make a profit, you know, three years down the road. And I've heard one farm that already has another farm in the the, uh, mid-Atlantic saying, I think we're going to have to shutter our doors and put all our efforts into, uh, I'll just say Virginia. It's one of those states. Um, And and then the impact. I mean, you just think about the investment in real estate, uh, the investment in stud fees, some of the nice horses that have been moved to Pennsylvania, and the fact that people are getting really wary of the future. And it's it's you know a smart decision to question it on their part because this is a major financial investment. He he, he has to understand, and the lawmakers have to understand. Go, hey, we're not pulling the plug on some rich guy running in the Pennsylvania Derby. We're pulling the plug on an agricultural industry. 
Well, John, obviously I agree with you, and that very argument is what's being made by the lobbyists, the, the breeders, the horsemen, et cetera, in Pennsylvania. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of legislators do understand and will uh, be uh, cognizant of these uh, problems, and they're astronomical. One thing you're right about, no matter what, the breeding season in Pennsylvania for 2020 has been destroyed. Because just like you said, that you've got to breed a, you breed a horse starting in February up to, you know, mid-May or something like that. By the time the breeding season is over with, everything is still going to be in limbo, and nobody's going to want to breed in Pennsylvania when they don't know if the offspring is going to be racing for great purses, uh, mediocre purses, or perhaps having no Pennsylvania program whatsoever. So the breeders have already taken it on the chin, and you know they could always recover next year. But again, the 2020 breeding season, you know, I don't know the numbers or anything, but it's just going to be devastated. And yeah, I mean. You and I and everybody else in horse racing understands these arguments. Now you've got to make the politicians understand them and, and see what happens. So, again, you know, I hope that the Pennsylvania Racing uh, Fraternity doesn't lose a single penny. That would be the best outcome of this. But what's going to happen? I don't know. And, and I, I do think, again, and this is just a guess, they're going to lose something. There is going to be a hit here. Well, you know, I, 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 I trust your opinion. I hope you're wrong for the sake of uh, the horsemen, not just at the track, but all throughout Pennsylvania. All right, here's something. We're going to rewind a little bit here, but I love your opinions. Is uh, what, did you, what was your takeaway from uh, the Justify Scolopamine debacle? Boy, I don't know. Um, it was a debacle. The California Horse Racing Board handled that very, very poorly. And again, you know, we talk about this a lot at the TDN and we do this podcast about how racing has to be transparent. And racing does a very poor job when it comes to that. I mean, this is something that they, they, they did sort of in back rooms. They didn't come out with anything. Uh, if it weren't for the, the reporting for the New York Times, we may not have ever even known about this, that uh, you know, this horse had tested positive for this medication in, in the Santa Anita Derby. And so, you know, they, they just really have egg all over their face. They handled this terribly. And largely, I think the CHRB does a pretty good job. That, but, but having said that, you know, Anybody who's looking at this as like a major doping scandal, that's nonsense. It, it, you know, this is one of those drugs that gets into horses through, uh, through contamination, environmental contamination, and there's absolutely no reason to believe whatsoever that Bob Baffert juiced the horse or was using this weird drug that comes from Jimson weed. You know, whoever heard of Jimson weed before, now we know everything about it. That, <laughs> That's a loco that weed they used to eat in the cowboy movies, right? <laughs> so, yeah, that he was trying to get any sort of edge with this horse. So, uh, you know, uh, there's two ways of looking at that. And I think the California Horse Racing Board, I hope they have, have learned from their mistakes. And something like this will, will never happen again. I and mean, basically, they, they just dropped the charges on Baffert without ever even, you know, letting the public know that it existed in the first place. And, you know, one of the, the crazy things about it is if they would have disqualified him from the San Anita Derby, he wouldn't have had any Kentucky Derby points. He wouldn't have been able to race in the Derby. So, you know, that's why it, it's a story that's had a lot of legs and has gotten a lot of coverage, uh, you know, both inside uh, the, the horse racing media and, uh, and outside of the mainstream media. But, you know, I do want to say that once again, you know, anybody wants to think this is a doping scandal and horse dope to win San Anita Derby, doped horse goes on to win the Kentucky Derby. That's not the story here at all. No, and you know it's funny because so every once in a while I'll, I'll be around Joe 
six pack or even the teller where I bank. And she's like, John, uh, was the derby fixed? I mean, what's going? I said, I said, did you did you read the next day's story? No. I said, because nobody promoted it. It wasn't bad news about racing. There were, I believe, what, six other horses on the same weekend that were identified to have scolopamine, a word I never heard of before, in their system. And I'm like, let's slow down here before we uh, hang Baffert and justify. Because just like, as you know, a lot of sides of the media just want to play the negative. Uh, they love, I mean, we're, we do a good job at giving ourselves a black eye, but the media sure it, it likes giving us the second uppercut. And, but, and when they found out they hadn't necessarily uh, delivered the knockout punch, it's like, you just didn't hear anything. You know, I understand that the California board you screwed up in the way they did it, uh, almost similar to the way uh, you just wrote an article about the XFL getting better uh, as far as full transparency. Um, but, you know, yes, we should have heard more, but uh, now I'm going to segue into the next, shall I say, debacle, and that was this year's Kentucky Derby. Oh, boy, where do you want to start? <laughs> I, I don't know. First of all, I think I think they got called right. I think the call was right, but I think the messenger <laughs> didn't get there in time and didn't follow up with delivery. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you on every single point. I mean, again, uh, as people that follow horse racing know, this was a historic Kentucky Derby for all the wrong reasons. It was the first time a horse who crossed the finish line first was disqualified, and that's maximum security. And I, I 100% agree with the call to take the horse down. I mean, he had to come down. I, I mean, he wiped out a couple of horses. It could have been a, just a – that's one thing racing got lucky this year on. That could have been a horrible scene oh. in the Kentucky Derby. If, you know, yeah. horses fell over him because of his interference and that sort of thing. I mean, Gary West, the owner, has just been, you know, relentless with lawsuits and whining and bitching since. Yeah, I really wish he'd just stop and just take his medicine because his horse deserved to come down. But what happened afterward is, is really what is troubling about it. And the obviously the stewards are under com- ton of pressure there. You know, this is the, going to be the biggest decision they had to make in their lives. They did make the decision. But, you know, here's something that everybody in the world wants to know. What's going on? Why did you take the horse down? Was it a unanimous vote? Was it a close call? What do you have to think about it? And they come out after the half an hour or so of deliberating on this thing, put out a bland little statement and refuse to take questions. You know, can you get a worse look than that? Can you get a worse, you know, meaning for transparency, the lack thereof, where, you know, it kind of gives the slap in the face to the media and to the fans as if you're not entitled to any explanation. Shut up. Just take what we said and, and go home. And I, I think they probably were told by lawyers to do that because they're going to get sued. Uh, they're fear to get sued. They get sued anyways. But you can't do that. You absolutely cannot do that. You have to be transparent with the public and let them know what's going on. And I right. never thought I'd be making comparisons to horse racing, the XFL, but you know the, the league's come out after being gone for 20-some-odd years, has this really neat development among uh, several things that they're doing differently, where the replay official is under the uh, microscope. He's mic'd up to a, a microphone. Cameras are in, and they're following every move. So was, it, uh, was the guy inbounds or not out of bounds? You hear every single part of the deliberations, and you hear his decision. What a great thing to do. And, you know, it's, it's funny that, like, you know, people 
mainly thought the XFL would be totally lame, were coming out afterwards the first week and saying, hey, this is really cool. And one of the reasons why is we like some of these innovations they're doing, including the transparency with the replay official. Geez, can't horse racing do that? Why not? Right, right. And what, what bothered me the most about it, and I, something I had to explain to people, <laughs> almost making excuses for it, why didn't they just flip the inquiry switch on? Nobody knew. Well, you sat around. Yeah, that, that, I was that, at the derby. Exactly Everybody was looking another, at each other. That was another thing. I mean, how could they not not see this and not post an inquiry? And of all things, if you remember, it was John Court. It wasn't um, War of Will yes. with Tyler Gaffleone, who was the Long horse that really got bothered. Mm-hmm. He never claimed foul. What if John Court, who finished 16th or whatever, never claimed foul? Would they have never done anything? You know, how could they not put up the inquiry side? Now, in the end, it didn't really matter because they took the horse down anyways. But, you know, that set them up for, um, you know, all sorts of second guessing. And I I believe I didn't cover the Derby in person this year. But as I recall, they didn't let anybody know the court claimed foul till well after the fact. You yes. know, just all of a sudden, um, oh, we're going to take a look at this. Well, why? You didn't put up the inquiry. Why are you looking at this? Okay. Well, you find out a day and a half later that the guy that finished up way up the track was the only guy that claimed foul. I know. And it wasn't really blinking on the board because he didn't finish in the top four. So everybody's just looking at the top two horses. And when you do that, you say, maximum security didn't bother that horse. No, he didn't, but he bothered a bunch of horses that finished up the track, uh, you know, and just the fact that I, uh, I believe it was War Will that in that one uh, rather uh, exposing photo, he was practically knocked sideways. And when you go back and look at the replay, I forget which horse it was, it might have been War Will, whose hoof came within, you know, six inches of maximum security. And again, you know, relating back to what you just said, it could have been the worst tragedy in thoroughbred racing ever. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that's one you know bright spot about it that, that the sport did get lucky because again, you know, how did all those horses stay up? I mean, that was pretty remarkable and everything. And um, but again, you know, we move on. We have Derby twenty twenty coming up, but you know that Derby is going to stick with me for many many years for and for a lot of for all the wrong reasons. I know we could have another Giacomo on our hands because it has been announced that Country House uh, is done for his racing career. Well, uh, Bill Finley, it's great to hear your voice again. I'll tell you that, number one. And uh, I hope I can get you on more regular. I know you work hard all day. And the last thing you probably want to do at eight o'clock at night is talk about horses with me. But I I respect your opinion. I, I always have and i really enjoy uh, reading the thoroughbred daily news because i know somewhere in there i'm going to read a story from bill finley hey john i'll be glad to come on anytime i'll be careful when you say that because i got your number <laughs> now bill <laughs> hey thanks a million <laughs> all right we'll Take see you all right it's been a thoroughbred daily news night with td thornton and uh, clips award-winning writer uh bill finley again as you can see he's a guy that really knows his stuff and does his homework before he uh gets to the computer or speaks on the microphone very well respected uh well again i want to thank both those guests i want to thank you for listening if you got a friend that you think would uh, find the show interesting be sure to uh tell them that this show will be on podcast starting uh uh, tomorrow and uh, they can come in so uh, come on over to winning ponies uh, re- read our easy wins if you play golden gate we really killed them last week that much i can tell you but nonetheless uh you know 
continue to support us, to listen, and uh, to your friends that uh, can't listen. Remember, they can pull us down anytime they want on the podcast. So for T.D. Horton, Bill Finley, and my producer, Josh, who does his best to keep me in line, I'm John Engelhart. Thank you so much for listening to Winning Ponies. Thanks for listening to Winning Ponies with John Inglehart. We hope the information from today's show will benefit you at the next post. Join us for more insight next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Variety Channel. Also, look for our weekly newsletter. Have a great week, and may your photos always be winners.